it might be it might be something that you have seen or that your attention has been called to that my wife and my family are absent and I think I should probably take this opportunity to mention to you that um, our son Joseph has chosen a very inconvenient time of the year to get married. Uh, the Sunday before Christmas, Sunday afternoon at 6 o'clock p.m., and it's probably as good a time as any to mention that back in the time of the early Reformation, uh, Sunday, and particularly Sunday morning worship services, were the time when people chose to get married. They would just have weddings during the morning worship. And we've done that ourselves once, and it was one of my favorite weddings ever. Um, well, Joseph is not getting married during a worship service, but at 6 o'clock in the afternoon. And don't ask me why, but that's when he's doing it. And so over the course of the next few weeks, the Baileys will often be gone, including at Christmas. And that's a new thing. In 20 years, I've never been gone from my church at Christmas time, but I'll have to be this time. So we ask your prayers. Is there a lot of trips, Meryl, and the kids are up for a shower that is being held where Joseph's fiance is in Wheaton. And uh, they'll be back late tonight. And uh, so pray for us as we travel, and please don't resent us as we're gone at Christmas. We would like to be here, but higher duty calls. And uh, I have a couple of other things I'd like to mention to you. Um, you know, if you've ever come to morning worship, that uh, there's not much chance, or excuse me, Friday morning worship, that there's not much chance that I'll be there. But I have surprised everyone and shown up twice in the last two months, which for me is a pretty good rate of appearance. And what I've noticed when I've been there is that none of you are there. None of you. And so I want to rebuke you. Now, I know I'm not there, so how can I rebuke you? Well, it's, it's something pastors are very good at. Uh, <laughs> But I do want to encourage you to go to Friday morning prayer. And if you're a man, any age, including little kids, uh, Wednesday morning we have a time of Bible study and prayer. I want to encourage you to do this. Um, this morning and last night I was listening to, I've finally gotten rid of CDs. They're such a pain. So I just sucked their guts out onto my computer. And then I can actually easily listen to what I want to listen to. Well, what I've learned is that when you listen to music that directs our attention to God, um, funny thing, it, ha it, it sort of does direct our attention to God. Have you ever noticed that? Have you noticed when you listen to music that's blues, for instance, it, it's not much about God. It's more about, you know, every day and every way the world is getting worse and worse. Um, and I could keep going and talk about music directing your attention. Read Plato's Republic and you'll learn all about it. But why am I mentioning music? Well, because I think that all of us should make a concerted effort to listen to Christian music. Now, I don't mean crud. There's a lot of crud of Christian music. But even crud, if it has biblical words, is good. And... Uh, why? Because day by day we ought to meditate on the things of God, and music is used to help us to meditate. If an older man wants to remember his affection for the life of his youth, he turns on an oldies station. And funny thing is, memory is directed back to when he first fell in love. Well, this is what we should use music for. We should use it to remember our first love, Jesus Christ. 
And one of the ways we do that also is by not just coming to worship Sunday morning or to worship in small groups Sunday morning and evening, but also by gathering with the saints during the week. Because every time we're together with the saints, we're strengthened. And if you don't like praying publicly, you can do what I did this week, which is I never opened my mouth. I just let other people pray. And I prayed with them. You don't have to pray. You can simply go and silently join them in prayer. Uh, in both places, we sing. Uh, we read scripture. And so I encourage you to do this. Uh, you should be doing the work of the church. Uh, the work of the church is not simply Sunday morning. It's during the week. And it is the work of prayer. So consider yourselves rebuked. And I hope some of you will show up Wednesday morning at the goat farm upstairs, 6.30. Or like me, you'll show up 6.40. Um, but there's coffee there and donuts and lots of warm fellowship for men. And then uh, Friday morning at 6.30 here at the church. Friday morning is always done promptly at 7.30. Wednesday morning I'm leading and... That should tell you something. <laughs> We're not done promptly, so many people leave when they have to, and that's fine, but we usually get done around quarter to eight. Now I'd ask you please to turn in your Bibles to, again to the book of Galatians, the first chapter. And this week we're going to pick up, immediately after the introduction, we're going to pick up with verses 6 through 10, where we get into the heart of the argument. And... A few weeks ago, Tim Wegner said to me that he had calculated that if I continued at my present pace, it would be two to three years before we finished Galatians. And so I made a strong resolution that I would not fail so desperately and that I would break up the book of Galatians into easily digestible segments I had a talk with David Carell, and he and I agreed that the following week I would do verses 6 through 10, and then he would do verses 11 through 18 the next week, and that this week we would be, I think, on verses 19 to 24. And then I began preparing for my next sermon, and I threw in the towel. And we are now on our sixth sermon, and we're starting with verse 6. So calculate... <laughs> So calculate how many verses there are in the book of Galatians, and you might have some approximation, but then you want to add in special services like Easter and Christmas, and so I hope you won't despair. And this morning, I'm saying this because uh, I'm not even going to get into verses 7 through 10. Uh, as a matter of fact, I'm not even going to get into... The second half of verse 6. <laughs> and uh, I think when I'm done, you'll understand why. But I do want us to read this section. I find that it's very helpful for us to name our sermons a, a, a quote directly from the text because it helps us to memorize Scripture. And it also helps us to read over and over again Scripture. I hope that you're in the habit each day of reading Scripture both privately and with your family, and that you listen to it over and over. Well, this morning, we are out of verses 1 through 5, the intro, and we're now into verses 6 through 10, and let us hear the word of God, which is eternally true. The Apostle Paul writes to the Christians in the churches up in Turkey, or what they called at the time Galatia, he says this. He says, I am amazed 
that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say now again, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters, if there is one thing clear in this world, if there's one truth that is obvious to anyone who has ever lived, it is that man is fallen. That man is corrupt to the core. That from the moment of conception, David spoke accurately when David said this in Psalm 51. Behold, he wrote, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. It's counterintuitive, the order he's put them in. Brought forth in sin... A doctor catches a baby. The baby is brought forth in sin. But he works backward to the very moment that life begins. And he says what? He says, in sin, my mother conceived me. And it's interesting that this statement of the all-inclusiveness, the complete universal nature of the sinfulness of man comes in the chapter of Scripture, which is David's confession of sin for what I believe to be the most, uh, the most tragic sin of a redeemed man in all of Scripture, namely his adultery with Bathsheba, his neighbor's wife, and then his murder of that neighbor on the battlefield by assigning him to a place in the front. He's confronted about his sin by the prophet Nathan. And it is following that confrontation that he responds properly to church discipline. He repents and then writes this beautiful psalm that we sang this morning, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me by thy spirit. Then I will teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners will be converted unto thee. And there in that chapter is this statement, Behold, I was, what? Brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. This was not an unbeliever who made this statement. This was a man after God's own heart, who had committed himself to the provision of God for our sin, namely, Jesus Christ. This was a man who saw the sacrifices in the temple as the blood of the lambs that was driving forward to the Messiah who would come and provide for us. 
And this was his confession about his own sinful heart. So man is brought forth in iniquity and he is conceived in sin. But lest we place the entire blame for our condition on our federal head, Adam, we must acknowledge it is clear that all of us of our own free will have taken what we received from Adam and have made things worse. Now you might object and say, why am I speaking of our own free will? And the answer is because Scripture is very clear in saying not one of us can place the blame for our sin on God. This is our own free will. And if any of us stand before God and are cast into the outer darkness of hell at the judgment seat of God, we will have to acknowledge that we freely chose this doom. That this was not something that God forced on us. And so as Adam, we, our federal head Adam, inherited or passed on to us original sin and corruption, we ourselves have freely chosen to improve the condition he placed us in. We ourselves have given ourselves to sin. We have in great zest and with great enthusiasm we have made things worse. Finding himself inclined to hatred against his fellow man and rebellion against God, the modern man, indeed all men through history, have given in to their evil inclinations and then have embraced them and have made them their home. We can no longer simply blame Adam for our sin. Rather, we must face the fact that whatever predisposition we find in ourselves to evil and not good, we have chosen to follow that predisposition. In fact, to make that predisposition the principle of our lives. Separate from God, separate from the blood of Jesus Christ, it is very clear that the ordering principle of this world is the depravity of man. It's no exaggeration when Scripture declares in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Who can understand it? Man has a depraved heart and stands guilty before a holy God. Now, if we seek to construct a system of education or government that is intended to limit or even to reform man's evil bent, honesty is going to compel us to admit that every such system is a complete failure. You know, there's a lot of debate today over the degree to which the founding fathers of our nation were Christians. And Christians, some argue that they were and uh, pagans argue that they weren't, and honest people in the middle say that it's hard to tell. But one thing we do know about the Founding Fathers is that they did adhere publicly to the biblically Christian faith. But we must also admit that in our own churches and in our own families, it's often hard to tell who truly believes in Jesus Christ. But when we read the Founding Fathers again and again, the theme that you find is them exhorting other people writing constitutions and holding public office. They exhort them saying what? They say that it is impossible for man to be good without God. 
And you'll find all through the history of America, presidents saying over and over again that if you try to take away from the people of America the fear of God and the knowledge of the Bible, that it is impossible for our nation to continue. In other words, religion has a certain utility. Religion is useful. And this is the kind of attitude that man has had towards God and towards his word all through history. That even if we don't have a hope of eternal life, even if we don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, even if we have no fear of the judgment seat of God, we can see that in this world, all of us would go to hell in a handbasket if there weren't some restraining influence. And so throughout history, you'll find Scripture and the Ten Commandments used as a restraining influence on evil. And you'll find leaders saying that without this restraining influence, it's impossible to have any sort of civil compact that will allow us to live together in peace. And they'll point to nations that lack any sort of religious restraint. And they'll say that they are just paragons of everything evil that man can do. And that's why we need, and in the Western world they would say Christianity. We need the Scriptures. We need the Ten Commandments. Well, today we've evolved, and I use that word tongue-in-cheek, beyond such foolishness. Today, instead of believing that we need the Ten Commandments in Scripture and Christianity, what we need is a liberal education. We need enlightenment. We need to encourage the evolution of man. Uh, we need to be progressive. We need to learn from the great tradition of liberal arts. Uh, we need to have hope in the perfectibility of man. And so the God that has replaced the God of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob today is the God of education and the God of uh, uh, the Enlightenment. All right, And that's what we hope in today. And that God has certain standards, and those standards are applied scrupulously. One of the standards is that any good must come from some degree of human freedom. And freedom must be defined as autonomy. You, know, you don't have any freedom unless somebody is completely separated from any external pressures whatsoever. And so the first thing that happens when you go off to the temple to this pagan god, which is the academic campus, is professors start in on you. Whether it's a Christian college or secular, it's the same thing. And they start in on you and they tell you that everything you've been taught from the time you're little is wrong. Now, I'm just quoting a, a, demo, a, a demographer from the sociology department at UW-Madison who said this as he had a nervous breakdown in front of our class. And I can give you his name after the service. He came in sweating. He was a chain smoker and you could smoke in class at the time. And as he puffed away 15 minutes late, he said, I have started the Third World War. And there were a bunch of non-separators, a very bright man. Racial demographics was his thing, how people live and don't live together in cities. And as he talked, he, he, he showed that his whole life was melting down. And then at a, at a crucial moment in his talk, he said, it all started... I think it was 30 years or 40 years ago when I went off to school and they told me that everything I believed was wrong. And you see, this is, this is the liberal mindset. The liberal mindset is cut out all the underpinnings, take away all the supports for anything you ever thought was right, 
And then, completely free of external influences, you, a tender young soul, will be in a position to make an informed decision about what your God will be. Anybody that holds on to Scripture is holding on to a crutch. Anybody that holds on to miracles is holding on to a crutch. Anybody that holds on to, uh, to Chevys and Fords, especially pickup trucks, is holding on to a crutch. Hold on to a Volvo, but, but not a Ford, you know. Um, anybody that holds on to not having their teeth worked on. Now, where did that come from? Well, you all know where it came from. I was explaining to somebody yesterday that as I've been thinking about racism recently, I've realized that racism in this area is nothing compared to the pride and uh, complete condemnation that this community has for all the people that live in trailer homes around this community. And so the university presents this vision, and it's a vision of the perfectibility of man. It's not a vision of man clinging to a cross and to blood. It's a, it's a vision of man clinging to the empirical method and to evolution and to the Big Bang and to everything that is independent of God. Everything that's independent of any external objective authority. It is simply huge subjectivism. But a subjectivism that submits itself by free will to... Everything gets taught by the liberal establishment. Now, I personally don't believe that's any worse than a religion that teaches you that you should cling to lighting candles and to having your children uh, baptized and to being a member and to having the church tell you that when you die, because you've done those things, you'll go to heaven. Because both of them are systems that drive your attention and trust to man. And to the efforts of man. And this is relentlessly the inclination of man. It is never man's inclination to turn and to admit complete failure before God and to ask God to give us everything we need to be saved. It is never our inclination to acknowledge that we are helpless. It is never our inclination to see ourselves nice, upstanding, you know, 250-pound male specimens. All right? It's never our inclination to see ourselves as a valley of dry bones where the crows and, and, and all of the predator birds have come and even eaten all the meat and the sinew off the bones and the bones rattle in the valley. It's never our inclination to see ourselves as a little baby that's stripped naked and has the blood of the birth canal covering it. And it's lying on the ground. And to say to God, that's me, God. Come and pick me up and hold me and clean me up and give me a home. It's completely opposite to any inclination that adult women and men have. We just don't do that. We have cars that don't break down with steel girders in the doors that don't give in when somebody hits us. 
And we observe laws, and even enlightened laws like seatbelts. We don't mind a police officer looking into our car as we drive down Indiana Avenue. Because this is all the enlightenment. You know? Everything we do is aimed at making us secure without God. At leading us to be good without God. Everything in us wants to be independent of God. We want to produce our own destiny and our own security. And next to the petty sins of adultery and murder and fornication, the sin of rebellion against God makes all of that nothing. I mean, a good, self-righteous, proud man might be willing to go his whole life without committing adultery so that one day he can stand before a holy God. And he can say, I have nothing to blush for in your presence, as one man said as he died of congestive heart failure from my church. A man I have no confidence was a believer. He looked at me and he said, I'm not afraid to die. And by that, he did not mean what Machen meant when he was dying in North Dakota. And he said, thank God for the active obedience of Jesus Christ. Now, Scripture is the account of God dealing with such men and such women, filled with pride, filled with a desire to be self-secure and self-directed and autonomous and, and, and filled with a desire to need no one, never. Scripture is an account of God reaching out to them and calling them to Himself of God opening up their minds and their hearts such that they can see that they're filthy and that they're lying with blood-covered nakedness on the ground, that they're not an adult, but they're a baby, and that somebody needs to come and pick them up and clean them up and, and give them a home. And then Scripture is filled with accounts of, of God not just giving people a vision of their sinfulness and their need for Him, but then of God in His love and mercy showing them that He is the one who does that. That He is the one who in the Old Testament had all of these animals being killed and all the blood and all the sacrifices to direct their attention forward to Jesus Christ who was the Lamb of God whose blood would be shed for the forgiveness of sins. And then Scripture is filled in the New Testament with accounts of men and women and children who had their attention drawn back to the cross of Jesus Christ, where across history, this Son of God, who was perfect in His life, was raised up on the cross so that all who believe in Him will be saved. And Scripture is filled with accounts of men and women in the Old Testament and men and women in the New Testament even prophesies about those who will be coming, who have never seen or known Jesus, who themselves will believe, and that's us. In this Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, whose blood was shed. And guess what? Guess what? Would it surprise you to know that these same people who God directed to see their own sinfulness and their need of Jesus Christ, and then who God directed to place their faith in the Lamb of God, would it surprise you to know that the sin principle comes into us such that having started with the cross in Jesus Christ, we then again turn back to the vomit 
The dog returns to its vomit. We turn back to our own pride and our own self-sufficiency and our own autonomy. And we again desire to be good without God. We again desire to be able to commend ourselves to God in heaven by saying, I led a good life. I was a member of Church of the Good Shepherd. I was baptized as a baby, dedicated as a baby. And my children are all walking with the Lord. Now that's the best construction I can put on it. Or, well, what is the book of Galatians? Well, the book of Galatians is an account not of people who claim membership in Church of the Good Shepherd. The book of Galatians is an account of people who, having had their eyes open to their sin, having had their hearts open to faith, having been given the gift of faith in Jesus Christ, what did they do? What they did was they had a few false shepherds come in among them, and the false shepherds said to them something like this. They said, you know... That guy, Paul, the guy that self-styles, you know, he claims that he's an apostle. Uh, but we know who really are the apostles. We know Peter, and we know James and John. We've been to Jerusalem. And this guy, Paul, he's, 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 he's good, but he doesn't go far enough. He doesn't give you what God really wants you to have. He left an awful lot out. Now, you see, they don't start by saying Jesus is not sufficient because that would scandalize you. You've all started with the cross. So they can't just come right out and say to you, well, the cross isn't the right way. You know, you're all going to be wise to that. Satan has to be sophisticated. And so what it is, is it's Jesus and. It's the cross and. And in their case, it was the cross and what? It was the cross and circumcision. And, and put yourself in their position. Always before, if you were around Jews, you were goyim. And that's not good. All right? You were their Sabbath uh, pagans. You, know, you were the one that came in and lit the stove for them because they couldn't get their hands dirty doing it. You were the one that they couldn't eat with. You were the one that took animals and, and mixed them up in your kitchen and your, your kitchen was anything but kosher. You were the one that they had to stay away from in order to get to heaven. And so now, all of a sudden, you're welcomed into the church. You're given a future and a home. What does Scripture say about you? Scripture says once you were not the people of God, but now you are the people of God. Once you didn't have a name, but now you do. Once you weren't the sons and daughters of God, but now you are. You have been given a place in the people of God, and they come to you and they say, you know, it's true. The Bible does point, the Old Testament points to this day, and it has come and it's a time of great joy and we welcome you. But listen, think about it. You know, you can't come into the church and, and dirty it up. You know, look, at the beginning, it would have been too much to tell you you had to be circumcised. And maybe there's a certain rationality behind what Paul did, you know. You know, don't hit them right up front with the hardest thing, you know. But now that you're in the church, don't you want this to be a place of cleanliness? You know, don't you want to rise up to the level that we Jews have always been on? You know, just be circumcised, you know. 
doesn't have to be a big deal. After all, have you ever thought about this? Have you ever thought about the fact that this same Apostle Paul, who says you don't need to be circumcised, <laughs> right after Acts 15, right after the Council in Jerusalem, made a decision that this didn't have to be done. Do you, did you ever notice what happens in Acts 16? Did you ever notice it? It says there that what? It says that the Apostle Paul had a new convert. His name was what? Timothy. And, and what did Paul do to Timothy? That man is a hypocrite. Right after the Council of Jerusalem said no circumcision is needed for Gentiles, this young man, Timothy, is told by his father in the faith, Paul, to go be circumcised. Look, Paul will have to deal with the Lord himself. He'll have to examine his own conscience. But as for you, do what he does, not what he says. He had Timothy circumcised. You need to be circumcised. Now, you listen to that and you think, well, it makes sense. You know, it does make sense. Paul did it. Why shouldn't you do it? And after all, circumcision was all through the Old Testament practice from the very beginning of God calling out a people. He had them circumcised. You read the account of Abraham being called by God and immediately what does Abraham do? Immediately, he and his whole family are circumcised. And then, generation after generation, when it comes up to Moses, what does Moses do with his son? Huh? Do you know? Moses doesn't circumcise his son. And so Moses is on his way to Egypt. And what happens? God strikes Moses so that he's on his deathbed. Why? Why did God do that? Do you know why? He did it because Moses had not circumcised his son. And so do you remember the scene? Do you remember his wife? Let me read it to you. His wife is, you don't know exactly the situation from the text, but I think any of us who have ever been married can pretty easily come up with a proposal about what the situation might have been. She is not one of God's covenant people, and so she looks at this little baby, and she's not about to allow this child to be circumcised. It seems like a bloody rite. It doesn't seem that it serves any useful purpose for her child to go through this suffering. Her husband is struck down by God, and it says in Exodus 4, verse 24, Now it came about at the lodging place on the way that the Lord met him, Moses, and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah, his wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet. And she said, You are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. I think those of us who are married can, can easily put ourselves in that situation and have a pretty good idea what's going on there. And so he let him alone. And at that time she said, you are a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. And so you can imagine these false shepherds coming into the church in Galatia and they say to them, you know, it's so good that God is allowing the Gentiles to come into the church and to be saved. You are now the people of God. We don't deny that. But surely you can see that the great theme in the Old Testament is that those who really want to follow God and who really want the higher blessing, you know, who really are ready to go out and to, and to get the best from God, 
You know, can you imagine them not circumcising their children? I mean, look at what happened to Moses. And do you think that God's going to treat Moses that way and, and you? It just doesn't matter with you. Doesn't the Bible say that God doesn't change, that He's immutable? That from generation to generation, He stays ever the same. And how can you expect to be able to neglect such a central part of the people of God from the very inception of the people of God? And that you will please God. And so what happens? What happens is that the Christians in Galatia do what? They begin to submit to circumcision. It seems like such a minor thing. I mean, you know, I could take another two hours. I can make the case so much better. And I'll bet that I could get you, you, to believe that it's a central part of our faith. As a matter of fact, there's no question in my mind that had you never read the book of Galatians and were you to come across it for the first time today, and were you to find the apostle among the apostles, Paul, writing at the beginning of a book about such a minor issue as whether or not new Christians should circumcise their children and be circumcised, all right? If you were to read him beginning that book by saying, look at Galatians with me again, saying what he says here, which is what? He says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. You go, wait. You know, what is the Apostle Paul worried about? He had Timothy circumcised. The people of God have always been circumcised. This is not a big deal. And then if you were to read on where he says, what? Even if we, verse 8, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we... And you'd stop and you'd say to yourself, it's a circumcision. It's a little thing. Now, Paul, get some perspective on this. And then you'd read on and you'd say, why is he saying it another gospel? And you'd read on and you'd say, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what? He is to be damned. As we have said before, say, I say again now, if any man is preaching you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be damned, accursed. Now am I seeking the favor of man? You see, as we go into the text, into the message of Galatians, right here at the gate, we see what's at stake. You can't read this rhetoric without realizing that whether he's right or wrong, the person that's writing this rhetoric is absolutely convinced that nothing other than heaven or hell, death and life, truth and falsehood, true gospel, false gospel, God and Satan, nothing less is at stake with this issue of circumcision. So then you stop and ask yourselves, all right, if Abraham and his children and, and Isaac and his children, Jacob and Joseph and Moses and David and everybody, if everybody circumcised their children, and if Paul himself circumcised Timothy, had him circumcised, how on earth 
Can this represent such a grave danger to the church? Okay, ask yourself that question right now. How? Ask yourself. How does it work? And right there, you're going to see whether or not you have the ability of seeing your own heart. Because, see, if you are aware of your own sin, not others, but yours, you will understand what's at stake with circumcision, which is having begun with the gift of God, you then turn to self-reliance. Now, that sounds not so bad, but what if I put it this way? Having begun naked, lying on the ground, covered with blood, you then get dressed real nice, and you commend yourself to God as being someone who in some way, maybe a little way, but some way deserves the salvation that he has promised. Because that's what circumcision is. Circumcision is the moment at which those who began by clinging only to the cross turn from the cross to their own provision, their own pride, to their own good works. And you know what? There are many of us in this church who are Galatians and who have stopped, who began the race well, but who no longer love Jesus but love themselves. There are many of us, and it isn't circumcision for us. It's a whole host of ways that we get rid of that noxious, ugly need of God. Because ultimately, we do not want to depend upon God. I mean, you think, can he be a Christian and say that? Yeah, I'm a Christian, and I said that. It is a constant discipline for us to sing, nothing in my hand I bring, but simply to the cross I cling. It is a constant discipline for us to sing. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and what? And poor contempt on all my pride. That's the issue in the book of Galatians. The Apostle Paul is intense. Is there any danger here? Or can we just look back at Turkey in the ancient world and say, those people have always been running off into errors. Is there any danger in Grand Rapids? Is there any danger in Wheaton? Is there any danger in Church of the Good Shepherd? Or is the danger just in the Roman Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox and the Pentecostal Church? Is there danger among our elders and pastors? What does it mean in the book of Revelation when it says you have forgotten your first love? 
You know, if you're on the church email list, that I asked you to listen to a hymn. And now we're going to sing it. It's by grace I'm saved, grace free and boundless. And I'd like you to turn to that in your bulletin or look up on the screen. And as we sing it, I want to ask you, is this your faith? Is your grace free or are you adding to it? And what about your children? What do you want most from your children? Do you want them to have a certain form of godliness that denies the power thereof? Or do you want them to love Jesus and the cross? Let's stand and conclude our worship by singing this hymn.